open your Bible to Ezekiel chapter 36. The good thing about Ezekiel is it's a big book in the Old Testament. The difficult thing is most people don't ever read it. <clears throat> so, but we have much to learn from this passage. I, I want to I start something this morning, and I, I don't quite have a length of agenda for how long we'll kind of share some thoughts here. It's really just a, an issue of sharing a teaching in an area of burden that I have for the church. And so however long it takes to share some of those things, and it may just be that we'll sprinkle those things on and off throughout other teachings that we're doing. But I would probably entitle some of these gathered thoughts under the heading of walking in newness of life. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that. And this morning we're going to introduce us to the new covenant. And I just, this area of teaching, I think we are needing to hear with fresh ears have a concern for us as a church as to how these truths are affecting us, how prevalent they are in our thinking as we seek to walk as God's people. And also, I'm, I'm sort of cheating on the men's retreat a little bit here and adding a session to the men's retreat. So you are actually, men, you have actually, your retreat has begun this morning. So even though we won't have this session at the men's retreat, it is important that you have this session before we get to the men's retreat. Let me, let me start off by highlighting something. I don't know how you guys are when it comes to ailments that go on in your body. You know, some, some issue pops up for you in your life. And, you know, you just begin to experience symptoms. Fatigue is increasing. Um, just find that you just don't feel the same way. Every once in a while... Maybe headaches come or some ache or pain shows up in your body unexpectedly. Now, I don't know how you are with that, but in my household, when that sort of stuff happens, there is this long period of delay before anybody does anything about it, uh, probably led by the dad, worst of all. Actually, that's not true. My children are quick to say, hey, there's something wrong with me. Uh, I'm quick just to ignore it. And so it just kind of stays in me for a long period of time. I get nagged by Peter on a regular basis that I should go and see the doctor. I guess he gets sick of me being sick. Not worse than me being sick. But I get reminded, you should go see the doctor on that. And then he tells me about somebody who's died because they look like I had something <laughs> that they had. Apparently I'm not easy to motivate in that category. It's to threaten me with death. Um, it hasn't helped. It hasn't helped, right? And I'm not sure it's going to help, but I appreciate the swing and the effort. Uh, my wife would be very different. She would find ailments in her life, and she just doesn't have time to fix them. So they just stay in her as well. And so we kind of have these symptoms that just sort of hang around in us. I don't know, maybe, maybe you're that way. And they just kind of grow over time. And then finally you go to the doctor with these things. And you know, you show up and the, and the doctor asks you this question. Well, when was the last time you were here? And, you know, some of us as adults are saying, oh, huh, I think it was a pediatrician. It was, you know, it was the last visit I had to a doctor. Well, then you're going to need to fill out this form. And they give you one of these forms, and it just starts, begins to ask you every kind of question. Do you have this? Do you have the experiencing this, that, that? So after about an hour later of checking things off, you finally go in and see the doctor, right? You guys have done this? Well, this morning, uh, how many of us know that spiritually that can kind of be the way we're living our lives? 
there's some aches and pains in the spirit. There's some things that aren't working right, and they've been in our system for a while. And, uh, you know, maybe you come in for counseling or something. When was the last time you sat down and talked to somebody about these issues? Uh, 20 years ago, 15 years ago. Um, and yet, these issues are in us. So I want, us to, I want you to sit down for a moment here. I've, I've put these little things. You can fill in the dots there in your outline there. This is your doctor's visit form. So you have these questions about your spiritual condition, right? Are you experiencing inability to grow and change? That kind of been going on in your walk for a little while. Stagnancy. Things just aren't, aren't different, right? You've been a Christian now for a while and, and things just aren't continuing. They're not changing. You're kind of stuck in a rut. The things that have been in your life that have been bad news items have been there for, oh, five years, ten years. It's just... It's just not kind of changing. Do you have diminished passion or zeal? Reduced radicalness. Remember when you used to do crazy things when you were a Christian? Remember when you just, I mean, God was, it permeated your life and you were talking to people about things and there was an opportunity to serve and you just were coloring outside the lines constantly. And then something happened over time and you just kind of got tamed. You just kind of, now you kind of just do more normal stuff. You know, I mean, you're right now, you're aware that seated around you are some people that you would consider radical. But, but you'd think they're radical. You're not thinking you're radical. They're radical. But maybe there was a day of radicalness. Is there just boredom breaking out spiritually in your life? You know, I, I, I got to say this is really, I, I think it tags the, the word of correction that was shared earlier. I think if you're a younger person here, um, none of us are exempt from this, but I think if you're a younger person here, your pivot age, your youth age, uh, there, is, there is a boredom that I see happening in your lives. I think part of it has to do with the way in which the culture you lived in entertains you. I think you've gotten used to a level of entertainment that previous generations didn't have. You have access to so many little things that kind of turn your knob, you know, make you kind of hoo, hoo, hoo. You just move from hoo to hoo. Thing, the thing, the thing, and you know you can get real bored with God. It'd be very good for you, honestly, to sit before God this morning and say, "God, I, that's true. I'm bored. I'm spiritually. I'm just bored with you." And that sound horrible. It's almost like, "Ooh, dude, can you say that from the pulpit?" Listen, you're saying it. You're saying it in your life. You're saying it in the choices you make, in the way you live, in your prayers. You're saying it. Let it come out of your mouth. If you need to say it to God, you need to just say it to God. God, I'm, I'm bored spiritually. I'm looking elsewhere for something to hold my interest and entertain me. That'd be a good starting point. Maybe there's an increased appetite for temporary fleshly pleasures. I think when you get bored, that's where you go next, right? I just want to find something out there that's going to fill up my day, give me something interesting to do. How's your condition of the spirit you know, is there lethargy in the fruit of the spirit right can't we recite these things okay the fruit of the spirit is love joy peace patience and we move through those things like they're meaningless phrases but when you look in the bible and the definition of love in the bible you know let that reinform the fruit of the spirit a love that is self-sacrificing that is eager for someone else's good that puts somebody else in the crosshairs of you spilling your life out on their behalf fruit of the spirit Joy. Is there joy in your life? Right? I mean, are we just kind of tolerating life? We're we just kind of making it through. You know, how's it going? Ah, 
I'm getting by, you know. That's kind of the way our response is. Or is that is there vigor and joy and hope and looking forward to? Is there a peace that's peculiar? Or are we like everybody else? I got peace because my circumstances are giving me peace. The news was peaceful. I'm getting a raise. This thing got canceled. I got peace. Okay, anybody can get that kind of peace. Do not be impressed. That's not the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is this invasive, alien component that comes into your life when the environment is not conducive for peace, but the Holy Spirit makes peace your experience. That's the fruit of the Spirit. So when you look at this list and you start checking some things off, right, before you go into the doctor calls you in, now I'm going to do some blood work on you. I'm going to find out just how much joy and how much self-control is in your bloodstream. What are you feeling about your spiritual health? And then what are you doing to fix that? And we're doing something. Or maybe we're not doing anything. Maybe we're just kind of, well, this is Christianity for me. This is just what it is. You know, it's, it's not more than this. This is, this is it, I guess. And we've just sort of downgraded Christianity to something that doesn't kind of look like this adventure that we find in the Bible. Maybe we've kind of got our traditional remedies, you know, you guys, you know what those traditional remedies are, right? You show up around somebody and you've got certain symptoms going on and they're going to tell you about, you know, their grandmother used to say, drink 10 gallons of orange juice and strap some garlic around your ankles and it just draws the, you know, it's like people come up with stuff, right? Well, you know, you can, you can kind of be doing that lucky rabbit's foot hop around thing in your spiritual life too. He's like, well, what's your remedy for this? Well, I'm just going to, I'm going to do this now. Or, you know, unfortunately, traditionally, traditions usually, we just keep doing what we've been doing, right? Can, can we just clue in sometimes what I've been doing isn't working? I'm just going to keep doing what I've been doing. Hello, it's not working, right? The revelation of you keep doing what you've been doing and you keep getting what you got, right? I don't know how that is grammar- grammatically, Peter, but, but that, that's true. Right, So I'm in this rut spiritually. I've been in it for a while. There's no zeal. A lot of the stuff that's described in that list right there does not characterize me. But I'm just going to keep doing what I've been doing. Listen, something needs to change. Or maybe our remedy is sort of the spiritual New Year's resolution. Right? I mean, the New Year just passed. But you know, spiritually, that might not align with your moment. You have this, this calendar moment. For, like, for some of you men, the men's retreat is your New Year's resolution point. You come, you get reminded, you get a fresh vision from God for being a man, and it's like, all right, from now on, things are going to be different. Give me every spiritual discipline books you guys have. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to read the Bible backwards twice this year, doggone it. And I'm going to lead my family through it if it kills them. And, you know, we just get this great vision. We're gonna, just going to be different. You know, if you, and, and then that date passes and maybe you guys will go to New Attitude. That's your, that's your point, right? You meet God at New Attitude and, all right, things are going to be different. The youth go off to youth camp. And every year at youth camp, all right, things are going to be different, right? So at some point here, we're trying to solve these issues. The question is, how do we go about just becoming spiritually more healthy, addressing some of these things that have crept into our life? Well, that's where Ezekiel chapter 36 is a wonderfully helpful passage. It's God's radical cure for what ails us. Let's read beginning in verse 16. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, 
When the house of Israel lived in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. Their ways before me were like the uncleanness of a woman in her menstrual impurity. So I poured out my wrath upon them for the blood that they had shed in the land, for the idols with which they had defiled it. I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed through the countries. In accordance with their ways and their deeds, I judged them. But when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name. In that people said of them, these are the people of the Lord. And yet, they had to go out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God. It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God. When through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Lord, you recorded these words. For us, you inspired them and you charged them as living words to be as alive today as they have ever been. Holy Spirit, minister these words into our soul. Open our eyes that we might see the greatness of truth that is here for us, ultimately for your great name. In Jesus' name, amen. Well. This section of Scripture, let me give you a little bit of background. This would be, I'm putting your outline, as God's people and their history of failure. When you get to the book of Ezekiel, what's called the major prophets, you're getting God's commentary, God speaking to his nation. And in this particular moment, and, and let us benefit from the study that we did before we moved in the building, uh, Ezekiel is an exile prophet. He is, this is the time frame in which, remember, Nebuchadnezzar's come. He has seized the people of God and he's taken them all into captivity in Babylon. So they are away from the promised land. They are living in a captive place. Jeremiah is Ezekiel's contemporary. They are, they are ministering to the people of God at the same time. Jeremiah remains in Jerusalem. Ezekiel goes with the people into exile. He's in Babylon. 
And so we're at a time frame here about 600 to 580 B.C. when these events are taking place. Now, what's very significant is the historical precedent leading to this moment. And if you study the Old Testament, it becomes very familiar. There's a great deal of cyclical activity that is here. And this morning, I want to introduce us to the new covenant. But you can, you can really only appreciate the new covenant once you've gotten a good glimpse at the old covenant. Because it is new, relevant to this which was old and is now passing away. So there was an old covenant that gets referred to in Scripture. And, and you turn to Exodus with me. Let me turn to Exodus 32. I'll put in your outline this other passage in Exodus chapter 24. Remember, this is where the old covenant gets its details, is when God has rescued his people out of the land of Egypt in 1450 B.C. Okay, so we're, we're way before the exile time here. 1450 B.C., God takes his people out of the captivity of Egypt, and he brings them to Mount Sinai, and he reveals himself to them. And all this revelation gets written down. And Moses brings this covenant that God is making with his people And he brings it down to the people. And the people listen. God has rescued them and God has revealed something about himself. And in Exodus 24 verse 8 says, Then Moses took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And we will be obedient. Alright? Sounds like a great deal. God's recaptured his people. He's brought them. He said, you are my people of all the nations. I've gathered you as my special chosen people. Here's who I am. I'm going to reveal my righteousness to you. I'm going to reveal how you walk with each other, how you respond to me, how you deal with the issues in your life. Uh, I'm going to bless you in these categories. If you disobey, this is going to happen in your life. They listen to all that and they go, we want that. Yeah. Where, Where do we sign? We're in agreement. Moses goes back up on the mountain. To get things all settled, he's going to come back down and going to have a meeting with them, but he's going to delay, right? So this is a people who are going to have to wait for God, but not for long, less than 40 days. Now, you just got finished saying, God, everything you want from us, we'll do. Look in Exodus chapter 32 now, and we're a whopping 40 days later. Verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron got up and he collected all the gold from the people and he put it together and according to Aaron, boom, out popped this golden calf. Imagine that. And they begin to worship and have worship services and celebrations centered around this idol that they have created. The idol of their own making of that which they learned from the culture that they just came out of, which is very important for us to realize. When you make idols, expect it to look like what you've already seen. Expect it to operate the way in which something else you've seen has operated. Expect it to try to benefit you the way in which you thought that thing was benefiting that guy over there. That's what they did. We're out here in the middle of nowhere. We're supposed to be going to some promised land. Moses has disappeared. God's guy is gone. Uh, 
Well, what did the Egyptians do in moments like these? Well, they made a God. It looked like this. It looked like this. It was shaped like this. It did these things, and we related to it this way. That's all they've done. And they've made idols in their own heart. Forty days after telling God they would obey him. Now, this begins a vicious cycle, right? We're 1450 B.C. Remember, Ezekiel is about 600 B.C., right? So we're, we're 850 years of history now is about to get written. Now, if you start reading that 850 years, remember we've told you, Mount Sinai collects all these books around it. So you don't have a, you know, when you read through the, the, the Pentateuch, you get into Deuteronomy and Numbers and Leviticus, all that stuff is just bunched up in a really small time period. And then time's going to start spreading out. When you get into Joshua, they go and conquer the promised land. They're going to fulfill God's promises and go into the land. And then Judges. And then you get into the historical writings in First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles. But once you start reading in Joshua, immediately they leave the mountain. Now, this is the guys who could only wait 40 days before idolatry came popping out of their hearts. Now, how well do you think they're going to do in the new land? This is not going to, these guys are not going to go on a win streak anytime soon, right? They have quite a bit of, over and over again, the same activity that needs to be fixed. Judges, turn to Judges chapter 3. We'll just jump into this series because Judges kind of portrays this almost in a way that gets monotonous. You start feeling like, haven't I read this already? Judges takes its name from the leaders that God was using to restore the people. They were leaders and they were given the role of judges to the people and they would help restore them to God. Verse 7 of chapter 3. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. That same phrase is used 46 times in the Old Testament historical books. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan. And you can read the rest on your own because I can't pronounce his name. Um, here into this, God turns his people over. He says, you, you want to serve the idols of the land? That's what your heart has been on. And God gives them over. And God allows the sin that they have chosen to begin to dominate their life. And eventually they're going to cry uncle over this. And God is going to hear and respond and send them a judge. And he's going to restore them. Look in verse 11. So the land had rest for 40 years. Okay, so he brings this season of rest. Now look in verse 12. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, king of Moab. Against Israel. Because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord, he gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. Now, over and over and over again, this cycle is going to happen. Now, a little bit later in this paragraph, they're going to cry out to God again. God is going to step in with a man and rescue them. And they're going to be restored for a period of time. And then guess what? They are going to do evil again in the sight of the Lord. And the whole process is going to go on. And you, in your outline there, I have a little quote from your ESV study Bible. It says, here's the plot. The plot of Judges is, one, the Israelites do what is evil in the sight of God. Two, God allows the nation to be conquered and oppressed by a neighboring nation. Three, the people cry to God. And four, God sends a judge to deliver them. Then the cycle repeats itself. 
Now, what I find interesting about this cycle is that it may be something that describes us as well, especially in particular categories of our life. I put a little graphic there for you to maybe think about and talk about when you're together with your covenant groups. But for us, maybe it looks like we begin with this wandering from God, right? Maybe what was discussed this morning, maybe this lukewarmness begins to set into our life and we just kind of begin to drift. We, just, we don't make some hard, fast break with God. We just begin to drift. And our heart towards God is colder and colder. And other things begin to be more and more interesting to us. And we make more and more time for them. And we investigate them more. And we get enamored by them more. And next thing you know, they kind of reach back into our life in a way that, wow, I, I didn't think it would do that to me. And this, this isn't always ugly stuff. Right? It, it may be issues that are, are life-dominating that we know, oh, we should be staying away from things like pornography, and drug addictions, and, and those kind of things, which, you know, you start, thought you would dabble in it a little bit, right? And all of a sudden, you didn't realize that thing grew an arm, and it reached out, and it grabs you by the neck. And now, you're not going anywhere. That thing has made its home in you, and it's beginning to rule you. You thought you had control of that thing, Right? Now it's controlling you and it's put you on a leash and it's telling you when you can come, when you can go. But it might also be your job. It could be the pursuit of a mate. That thing reaches back and it grabs a hold of your life and now it owns you. Right? This is the same cycle. You wandered into this territory, you wanted the things in the land, and then things in the land begin to dominate you and take control of you. Now at some point, you're not going to like that anymore. At some point, that's going to get old. Now, in the beginning, you like it. That's why you're doing it. But eventually, you're not going to like this thing. And at some point, you're probably going to cry, Uncle, God, help me. I hate this thing. I don't want to do this anymore. So you cry out to God. And by God's grace, he steps in. He meets you. He meets you at some event. He meets you just personally. Uh, he meets you through some care. Somehow, God pours his mercy into your life. And things begin to be different and you get peace in the land for two years, two months, five years. But then for way too many Christians, the cycle begins again. We wander. And off we go again, only to go do this again and again and again. Now listen, it may be that you've managed to contain that cycle in certain categories of your life to where when you go astray, you don't completely go astray. But certain aspects of your life go astray, right? You keep some under control. Other ones are controlling you. Well, how does God deal with this? Right? When, you, when you understand what is it that's at the center of this going astray thing here, right? I put in your outline the anatomy of turning away, right? If we were to learn from Deuteronomy when God is rehearsing going into the land, Deuteronomy chapter 6, and we mentioned this verse last week, and we're going to mention it again. God's got great promises, right? God gathers his people together. He forms the people for himself. He rescues them from Egypt. And he says, I have got this incredible plan for you. I, I want to put you in a land flowing with milk and honey. You are going to love this. It's going to be great. But God knows that when you get in the land, that land will have in it certain allurements to you, certain temptations to you. So he prepares them for that day. Look, back in verse 4 of Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. And with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk with them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way. Right? These, this is what I want you to remember. This is what I want you to dwell in. And then he warns in verse 10. The Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you. With great and good cities that you did not build. And houses full of all good things that you did not fill. And cisterns that you did not dig. And vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. Right, let me just stop here for a second because there's a, there's a giant theological statement being made right here that will help many of you who live in America and feel guilty for what you have in your life. You do realize God didn't say, when you go into the land, burn it all to the ground. Everything. I want you to have nothing. Because if you go into the land where there is anything, it's going to be a problem. You're going to be tempted and lured away. And so the best thing for us to do is just annihilate the place. As a matter of fact, I'll introduce you to the atomic bomb. You blow the whole place up, wait 10 years, then you go in. There'll be nothing there, nothing will grow. It'll be absolutely desolate. That way your heart can remain pure to me. Do you notice God does not do that? He actually says, I'm putting you in a place that you're going to actually enjoy it. It's scenic. You're going to love the taste, the flavors, the smell. This will be great houses for you to live in. Listen, God is not against you being blessed. But here's the other fault of the church, right? You got part of the church who says, if you're really spiritual, you got nothing. That's how you can find the spiritual people. They got nothing. You know, heaven is their home and, you know, they walk around with no shoes and they don't live in a house. And that, that's not true. That's not biblical. But the other side of that in our country is, I'm trying to say this nicely, but maybe I don't need to, is the fools behind pulpits who are turning loose of people with prosperity without this verse. Fools. Right? You come from a church where you had a pastor who pumped you full of prosperity all the time, over and over and over again. Fool! Because the God of this world said, you know what, if I stick you in a land of prosperity, you better be aware. Your heart will want that stuff more than it wants me. If God had to say that to his people, knuckleheads standing behind pulpits like this better be saying it to their people. You hear me? I'm telling you, you live in America, guys. There's lots of toys and trinkets out there. God's not against toys and trinkets. But you better be careful because those toys and trinkets will own you. And your heart will go after them. Be prosperous, yes, but be careful and be wise. Because God goes on and says, When you eat and are full, then take care, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And you go off and serve idols. And listen, what, what, what happens here? Why do we have this historic precedent from 1450 B.C. all the way to 600 B.C. of a people who live in this cycle where they depart and return and depart and return and depart and return over and over and over again? Right? Well, it might help us to understand why do people depart in the first place? People depart... Right, this is as deep as my philosophy gets. Because people do what they want to do. That's why they depart. Why do you have God sitting before you as an option and you depart? Because you want something else. 
mean, let's not candy coat this thing, right? Oh, you know, listen, I'm going to spare you. We'll make all of our counseling meetings shorter with this statement. You know, when you wander off into idolatry, don't, don't come in and say, I don't know what's going on. I mean, I really love God. Right? I mean, isn't that the temptation for us? And this is why we're tempted to do this. I'll give you a little bit of slack here. That's why we're tempted to do this. I haven't cashed in all my chips. <laughs> I still have a few things that belong to God. But here's the problem with God. God, God raises the bar and he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. See, God is never interested in the peace. God is never interested in most of it. He doesn't even like 99%. See, God's God's God, and he has a right to be a little bit radical for us here. So God comes along and says, love me with all your heart. So when we come in and we say, but I still love God. No, not the way God intended you to love God. You love God the way in which you're comfortable loving God, and the truth is you love something else. Why do these guys go astray? Because they love something else more than they love God. Let's call it as ugly as it really is. I'm bored with God. That's why I go astray. I don't think God's that cool. I don't think he'll reward me. I think there's benefit elsewhere. I think that's awesome. I think I want to taste that. I think I want to try that. I think the pleasures over there are better than the pleasures over here. God, thanks for the offer, but I found something better. Listen, this is all the way back in the Garden of Eden, isn't it? When God promised Adam and Eve a certain life and trusting him, and and all the devil had to come along and say, well, (laughs) come on. God knows that the day you eat of that, it's better. He knows that. He ain't being straight with you. So isn't that still the same lie being told to every one of us? There's a better way out there than God's way. Now here's, here's the epicenter of turning away. And this is what I want to make sure that we are giving sufficient attention to. The epicenter of turning away is in the heart. If you want to know why we turn away, something is going on in my heart. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. See, the intention of the heart is where the battle is lost and is where wandering begins. You can look up that verse later on your own. Matthew chapter 15. Jesus accuses the religious people of the day of having heart problems. He says, you know, you guys honor me and you worship me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. And he sort of pinned their ears back when he said it, so much so that his disciples kind of asked for some clarification on this. The very next passage is where Jesus clarifies the issues of the heart. He says, you know, it's not what goes into a man that defiles a man, but it's what comes out of the man. For out of the heart come wickedness and deceitfulness and greed and fornication, right? Out of the heart is where the problem is. The heart is the problem. James chapter 1, verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Where do your desires resonate? In your heart. Your, your, Your heart is the incubator for desires. It's the greenhouse for desires. It's where they get planted. It's where they get started. It's where they grow. 
The heart is the issue here. James 4 comes back to it again. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. So here's the anatomy of, of the people of God's problem. Hearts that begin to want that and no longer want this, and we begin to wander into that and eventually become overtaken by it. And hopefully, at some point, cry, Uncle, we've had enough, and perhaps return to the cycle again. But God says something. Go back to Ezekiel here. Okay, we're, remember, 1450 B.C. Now we're at about 580 B.C. All right, so we are... 800 plus years of cycle living removed. And God is stepping in now and he's saying, you know what? Even when I squish you guys out of the promised land, because God would do that, right? He'd allow a nation to come take them captive. They'd go off into Assyria. They've gone off now into Babylon. So God would displace them. God's telling them, hey, you know, even when I do that, you guys profane my name wherever you go. I put you in a land so that you might be this radiant declaration of my glory. And instead, you defile the land. You're sinning there. You have idolatry there. So anybody who comes and traffics and walks through that land, looks around and sees the people who don't declare the glory of God, all they see is the sinfulness of man. And then I squirt you guys out of the land, deport you. And then everywhere you go, you do the same thing. You go off into Assyria and they see a poor image of God. You go off into Babylon and they see a poor image of God. You guys are the image bearers of who I am. And right now, all you are is a lot of bad press going all over the world and people are saying, huh, wait, 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 those are, those are the people of God? You gotta be kidding me, right? All that we've heard about this God, those are the people, really? Wow, that's a little confusing. That's what God's saying. So God says, I'm going to act. Like verse 22. Therefore says, therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you profaned among the nations to which you came. Now, this, is, this is insulting good news. This is insulting good news. I hope you can see both of them in here. Because you have a God here who has found a reason to do something that is ultimately going to benefit us. Now, the question now is, why would God do that? Now, this is, please hear this, and I'm going to try and revisit this in this series. Because this is very informative as to what you believe about God and how you get out of your spiritual illnesses. Can anybody in these verses, remember where we are, we are 1450 B.C. to 600 B.C. Can anybody in these verses find that God found a reason in man to take on the actions that he was going to take on? Can anybody find that in this verse? Why does God do it? Take notes, he actually says, take note. I am not doing this for those reasons, but for the sake of my own name, I'm about to act. I know that sounds insulting, right? It's like, you guys can't even give me a reason. I'm going to have to come up with one of my own. Now, here's where this is good news. That's still true today. And if God's going to do something in your life today, 
It's not going to be because you gave him the reason. It's going to be because in him he found the reason. See, this is, if you understand some of this, you start beginning to understand Romans chapter 9. Very difficult passage when God says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. It doesn't depend on the object of my mercy to get me to have mercy. You don't have to clean your act up. You don't have to make a New Year's resolution. Man, you don't have to buy every spiritual discipline book we make available at the retreats. You don't have to fake God out with good intentions. God, I know I've been doing this. And before I get found out, I'm really, I'm right with you, God. Look, God saw me there just for a second. I was in the light. I was looking good. You know, I made a prayer. I answered the altar call. did something cool. God's going to come in now. Listen, if you harness God to you, you're going to end up figuring that out some point. And under, the undercurrent of doing that is you're going to know, I never give God a good reason. And so you're going to end up with a God who will never get on your side. He's never for you, see, because you haven't given him a good enough reason to be for you. And, you, and if you gave him a good reason, you know, that was like two days. What, three days you pull that off. Great. And look, you're right back where you were before. Yeah, you're right. My history. Listen, this is 1450 B.C. to 600 B.C. These people have not given God a reason to do anything merciful in their lives. God says, make sure you understand this. I'm not doing this because of you. I'm doing this because of my name. My name that you guys have profaned wherever you've gone. But I'm going to do something. God's going to do something incredible here. I love the word choice. I will, verse 23, I will vindicate the holiness of my great name. And then parentheses here. My great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned among them, and all the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God. When through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. So God is into vindicating his name through his people. Here's how he's going to do it. Okay. Here's how God is going to vindicate his name. Verse 24. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Now what an, what an outrageous statement. I'm going to vindicate when somebody uses word like vindicate my name, I'm going to vindicate my name. I'm, I'm expecting God's loading a gun. I mean, I, I'm expecting he's saying, bring me the sword off with their heads. I'm going to vindicate my name. God turns around and says, I'm going to vindicate my name. Right? I want to highlight two things here for today. I'm going to vindicate my name, one, by making a new covenant. And two, by making a new people. I'm going to make a new covenant. And I'm going to make these people a new people. And in that day, we're going to see something different. We're going to see a people who don't live in the cycle. We're going to see a people who are going to walk and declare my glory in their lives. Right? So God foresees a day, the day that actually you and I are living in. Let me go through first. The making of a new covenant. This, this language here in Ezekiel, if you turn back to Jeremiah... It's the same language that Jeremiah is being given, right? This is God's dealing with his people, so he's inspiring these prophets to say these things. And they are saying the same thing. Look, Jeremiah, 
chapter 31, we learn about the new covenant. Verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke. Yeah, they broke in less than 40 days. Remember that one? And the one they've been walking with in for 800 plus years. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Listen, very different here. I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Right? There's coming a new day. Jeremiah saw it. Ezekiel saw it. Now listen, turn to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. This is how Hebrews speaks of this passage. Right? If you ever see somebody summarize the book of Hebrews, sometimes they'll use just one word, the word better. Hebrews is a book about that which is better. A better priesthood, a better covenant. Right? It's the new covenant. It's clarifying what the new covenant is. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look For a second one. For he finds fault with them when he says... That's not a good translation. He finds fault when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. And this is an exact quote from Jeremiah. Okay, this is how the New Testament sees Jeremiah's prophecy. And then you get to verse... Go down to verse 12. It ends right where he ends. For I was merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Verse 13. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Now, this, listen, there's so much here. I'm trying to just really focus in on one thing today. But this idea that God is going to make a covenant in which he does no longer remember. Listen, this is not God forgetting in the sense that you and I forget. This is God. The language actually here means God choosing not to remember. In order to punish. It's not as though God, you know, I know this is cute when you walk and you confess your sin to God and God goes, what sin? (laughs) Okay, that's cute. And it makes you feel like, oh, God really has forgotten my sin. Uh, That's not quite how it looks. Okay, he's not wandering around heaven. I've said this before, gazing at the arm marks of Jesus where there are these piercings for him going. I'm trying to remember what happened there. You know, the marks in your wrist. Jesus, you know, I've just forgotten that whole... No, God has not forgotten in that sense. God has chosen not to respond to them in the way in which they deserve to be responded to. And he can do that because he's already chosen to put the penalty on Christ. He knows what those wounds are about. And he knows that I've sinned. But he's choosing not to reward me according to them. 
See, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. See, before the eyes of God, you will be cleansed and clean. Right? And the New Testament sounds this way in 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we see here's Ezekiel coming to pass. Okay? But Hebrews says something. Romans says something about this old covenant way of doing things. That, that it was something wrong with it. It had a default in it. It didn't work correctly. And why was that? Now be very careful here that you don't fault the wrong thing. Is it because what God said at Sinai wasn't good? Is it because the law was, was bad? We, we, should, we should be antagonistic toward the law. Because, see, the law is a bad bunch of ideas. See, that's what the old covenant, that's the old covenant, man. The new covenant, woo, we're loving the new covenant. But when you bring up that old covenant, don't be hanging the law stuff on me. Listen, all of us have got this in us. Okay, here's the deal. The, the New Testament finds fault. And it says the old one, if, if it had worked, there wouldn't be a need for another one. So there's a problem here. But listen to how Romans 8 says it. It says, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. That's what the old covenant stirred up in us, the law of sin and death. Here's the problem. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. The problem in the old covenant is not in the words of God. It's in the flesh of man. And specifically, remember what we're trying to solve here. Man has this cycle problem because man has a heart problem. Man has a heart that wants to go astray, that wants something else. So if I'm going to enter into a new covenant with God, really these things that Ezekiel speaks of are going to be so great, something's going to need to happen in here. This new covenant needs to do something on the inside of me. Look at these words from Philip Ryken. He says, The problem with the Mosaic covenant was that it was written on tablets of stone. If anything was written on the hearts of God's people, it was, their, it was only their sin. Judah's sin is engraved with an iron tool inscribed with a flint point on the tablets of their hearts. With the new covenant, however, God solved the problem of the sinful heart by giving his children new hearts and new minds. According to Calvin, the new covenant penetrates into the heart and reforms all the inward faculties so that obedience is rendered to the righteousness of God. Now, that leads us to the second point here. God vindicates his great name, secondly, by making a new people, by making his people new, by changing us. He doesn't just change the covenant. He changes us. And this is, this is incredibly important to catch because great theological statements can escape this point. The doctrine of justification, incredible. It releases me from the guilt of my sin. It brings to me forgiveness and complete acceptance before God. It is part of the new covenant. It's not the only part. It is part of the new... It's a very important part of the new covenant. But here's what can go on in our minds. When we start thinking about the new covenant, we can start thinking, okay, when God saved me somehow in the clerk of court's office in heaven, my paperwork was pulled up. Sin after sin, there were reams of it. I mean, just charge after charge. 
of sin. And at the bottom, there was a tally point. And there was this penalty for all those sins that needed to be paid. And it was going to ultimately result in my death and separation from God forever. And in the courts of heaven, when Jesus Christ took on himself my penalties and my sin, and he grabbed that ledger sheet and he took it with him as it will to the cross. And he said, I'm here to pay for this. He held that thing up and he shed his blood. And that blood, if you will, produced the ink that somebody took a stamp in heaven and stamped that ink and took my paperwork and said, paid in full. And I no longer owe a thing to God. That's justification. That's incredibly good news. But let me tell you, you can love justification and fall short of the new covenant. Because that stamp in heaven didn't do anything to me. It removed the offense of my sin before God so that now there's accessibility for me and God. And there's acceptability before God, but it didn't change me. And if all I have is new paperwork, I have the same heart that the cycle people had for years and years just to keep on going through the cycle, keep on going through the cycle. The same heart in me that always just wants to wander, wants to go away, doesn't have anything that's going to keep me. Listen, this, this would be a primary difference between Christianity and every other world religion. If you today decide this is my last day of being a Christian, I'm out of here after this, I'm going to go, I'm going to go find a mosque and I'm going to become a Muslim. If you became a Muslim in the, in the teaching of Islam, what would change about you is all on the outside of you. The rules would change. Concepts about God would change. What you're called on to do in honoring this religion would change. You would remain untouched. If you became a Buddhist today and decided, I'm going to go observe Buddhism. What you believe about God would change. What you believe about your life would change. Your belief system would change. Your practices would change, which are all on paper somewhere. You would not change. When you become a Christian, that's not the case. Not only does the paperwork change, you change. The work of God going off inside of you is like an atomic bomb has come to the insides of you. You are a different person. Ezekiel 36. Go back there with me. Verse 26. Here's how God will vindicate his name. He will sprinkle us clean. So I believe he removes the stain, the sin of guilt. Our record is made clean before God. And, verse 26, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Something on the inside radically is changing in the new covenant, in this new relationship with God. A couple of quotes here that were worthy that you'd take them with you. John Piper says, but forgiveness and cleansing is not enough. Oh, and listen, not to minimize, you know, John Piper, forgiveness and cleansing is huge, isn't it? But just sprinkle clean water on you and you're going to be clean and your record is going to be scratched off as though you had never, ever offended me. That's awesome. But it's not enough. 
I need to be new. I need to be transformed. I need life. I need a new way of seeing and thinking and valuing. Amen. That's why Ezekiel speaks of a new heart and a new spirit. Here's the way I understand those verses. To be sure, the heart of stone means the dead heart that was unfeeling and unresponsive to spiritual reality. Not dead in that it didn't exist. Not dead in that it didn't have activity. Not even dead that it didn't have passions. But it was dead to spiritual reality. The heart you had before the new birth, it could feel. It could respond with passion and desire to lots of things. But it was a stone toward the spiritual truth and beauty of Jesus Christ and the glory of God and the path of holiness. That is what has to change if we are to see the kingdom of God. So in the new birth, God takes out the heart of stone and puts in a heart of flesh. The word flesh doesn't mean merely human like it does in John 3, 6. It means soft and living and responsive and feeling instead of being a lifeless stone. In the new birth, our dead, stony boredom with Christ is replaced by a heart that feels, spiritually senses the worth of Jesus. That's got to happen. The truth is, if you're a believer, it has happened. It be very important for us to wrestle through the implication of that. So there is a new heart, there is a new spirit. And John Piper says, when Ezekiel says in verse 26 and 27, a new spirit I will put within you and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. Right. This is being said to a people in exile for 800 plus years who can't seem to get it right. God says, you're profaning my name. I'm going to vindicate my name by doing this in you. And you will. You will walk in my statutes when I do this. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. I think he means that in the new birth, God puts a living, supernatural, spiritual life in our hearts. And that new life, that new spirit is the working of the Holy Spirit himself, giving shape and character to our new heart. Okay, now... Christianity, unlike every other religion, just relocated. The moving truck has come, and the center of operation is no longer books. It's no longer people. It's no longer buildings. It's no longer lists. It's gone inside. God has just taken Christianity and put it inside the believer, which I am very concerned as a pastor That's failing to be appreciated by too many of us. And we have deported Christianity to where it's all on the outside now. And we don't know how to live inside out. That's why we're doing this series. Because I don't think we know how to live inside out. Listen, I'm not saying this. I'm glad we've got all the new folks that are here. Let me just do a little experiment here for a second. How many of you guys have been... I'm about to be... Celebrating 30 years of being saved next month. Been saved for 30 years. How many of you guys stand up if you've been saved for 30 years or more? Stand up. All right, listen. Listen to me, 30 year olds. This teaching is for 
you. Can you hear me afresh? Please don't think you got this thing down. I'm about to be 30 years old in Christ and I don't get this right. I shared with the guys I went away, did a personal retreat. I spent time wrestling with God saying, God, there is more here than I have a clue about. About you have come in here and an an explosion has occurred on the inside of me. So listen, this is great teaching for the new believer. If you're 30 years in Christ, let me tell you something. You are in a a strange danger point because you think you already know this. It's not a good place because, you know, the section sitting right here. These guys know they don't know it. They come up after every, every service. You can sit down. They come up after every Sunday and they go, okay, I don't get that. You know, what, what was that? You can tell it's all new. It's all like, okay, I'm getting this. It's those of us who've been around for too long. We've already heard all this. But if you go back to your doctor's visit, check rest. And you got ailments going on inside of you. And you checked off some of those things, 30-year-old plus. You got issues that are about this. No question. God has done something here to bring Christianity to the inside of us. And that inside is, I'm just, I'm going to skip through some verses here and just try to limit some thought here. We'll go back at another point. I put in there 2 Corinthians 5.14. That's the, the new creation passages. But do you ever think where they start? You back up a little bit from where new creations in Christ. You back up and it says the love of Christ. Some translations say controls us. I, I, don't, I, don't, I like that and I don't like it. Uh, other translations say compels us. Others say constrains us. In all these things, something has come in here that has taken over. It is an exploding dynamic. The love of Christ compels my life now. And so that's the way the Bible talks about the Christian life. Look, let's just race through these verses here. We can visit them again another time. Galatians 4, 6. Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. There's something on the inside of you that's crying out to God as Father. And it ain't you. Well, it is you. But it ain't just you. It's the Spirit of God dwelling in us. Romans 5, 5. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. Romans 8, 15. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Have you, have you heard that lately from God? Has the Holy Spirit bore witness that you are His child? Amen. The fatherness of God and bouncing off the walls of your heart because the Holy Spirit's screaming that to you on the inside? Or, or again, no, I haven't heard that. Wow, is it just because of what's out here that I'm listening to? Devoid of the life of the Spirit. Philippians 2.13. It is God who works in you both to will and to work of His good pleasure. Hebrews 13. Now, may the God of peace equip you with everything good that you may do His will. Amen. Working in us that which is pleasing in His 
sight. Why do you and I serve, obey, overcome, take on sin, challenge, wrestle? Why do we do any of that? Because there's a work of the Spirit of God in us. There's a compelling of the love of God in us that's seeking to escape me. It's seeking to get expressed through me. It's trying to make its appearance in me from the inside out. Let me close with this quote here. Matt, go ahead and come up. The new birth, listen carefully, this is so helpful. The new birth is the coming into our life of the Holy Spirit to create a whole new array of desires and loves and yearnings and longings. And when these desires are stronger than the opposing desires of the flesh, then we are walking by the Spirit. For we always act according to our strongest desires, right? People do what they want to do. Therefore, walking by the Spirit is something the Holy Spirit enables us to do by producing in us strong desires that accord with God's will. This is what God said He would do in Ezekiel 36, 26, and 7. A new heart I will give you and a new spirit I will put within you. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. Thus, when we walk by the Spirit, we experience the fulfillment of this prophecy. The Holy Spirit produces in us desires by God's way that are stronger than our fleshly desires. And thus, He causes us to walk in God's statutes. At some point, I want to bang on this drum pretty hardly in the next time that we're together, maybe. Whatever it is that you're doing as a Christian, and whatever it is that you're not doing as a Christian, is it being done out of the deepest desires of your heart? And it's very possible that we're here this morning because that's what we do on Sunday morning. We come here. It's just, it's just external habits. Or is it the, the impulses of the Spirit in my heart that drive me to places and settings like this? You know, men, when we sit down and we teach and we talk about relating to our families and, you know, certainly I'm going to end up on the bad end of that thing. I'm going to end up being convicted that I'm, I'm not responding to my wife this way. I'm not leading her that way. I'm not dealing with my children this way. And here will be the critical matter. Is that going to be external code that you read about? Or is the doing of that going to become an internal explosion? See, listen. Don't assume that you're going to feel the explosion. I think that's what many of us are missing. I think we've missed out on doing exactly what we want to do. Oh, we're doing what we want to do. The problem is our want-tos are in the wrong categories, aren't they? And the cycle begins. You know, there's a way to run that cycle differently. By the Spirit. Walking in newness of the Spirit. And I love the tone of this. But the last thing in your outline, Ezekiel 36 meets man's historical precedence with God's sovereign determination to vindicate His holy name through and in us. God is going to work in your life and my life so that His glory comes pouring out of a bunch of people who want to do these things.
things. We want to do them more than we want anything else. No matter what your historical precedent has been, whether it's been 850 years of walking it out wrong, God says, I'm going to vindicate my name in you. And I'm going to do such a work in you that it's going to come out of your life. Wow, that's some good news, guys. Let's stand up together. us this morning. Eyes afresh to look at your word. Holy Spirit, lead us deeper into truth that we must see correctly. Lord, if there's ever going to be a day for any of us where the wrong pursuits and bad habits are broken, it's not going to be because we pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. God, even if my bootstraps include Bible reading Going to covenant group, spiritual disciplines and accountability. God, if those are bootstraps, I'm going to fail. Because even the people in the Old Testament, they had words, good words, with good ideas in them. And all they did was fail over and over and over again. God, if I'm going to be different, it's going to be because you've made me different. If I'm going to live differently and choose differently and want differently, it's going to be because you made me to want differently. You've sent a new heart to replace this stony, cold heart that was bored with you and uninterested. Giving me a new heart, God. And you've put within me the very power of your presence. You are no longer out there. You're no longer with us. You are in us. So that the power and the desire are both now in here. God, awaken the truth of these words for us. God, as we explore our walk together, God, lay the foundation. God, as these men gather this weekend, God, lay the foundation for us to experience new life, the new covenant life that you've promised for us, Lord. God, we don't want to dumb it down. We don't want to downgrade it. We don't want to settle for less. God, you said you'd vindicate your holy, great name. God, make your name holy and great again in our midst. In us and through us. For your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Bless you guys. Amen. We'll see you next week. Hey, uh... Just a public service announcement next week. Uh, if any of you men decide to disobey God and stay here, uh, <laughs> I partially mean that, not completely, but partially. Uh, the, the meeting here will be mostly women. 